0: Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now, with your host, Peter Miller. So today we're going to Colorado to talk to Bobby Click about one of my favorite areas, sports. And we'll get into that in just a minute. So Bobby, uh, let's start with your academic background. Where did you go to school?
1: Yeah, great, thanks for having me on, Peter. So I went to undergrad and got a degree in philosophy from the University of Alabama down in the Greeks, uh, city of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, so roll tide, and also went to law school there, so I'm a licensed attorney, so I went to the University of Alabama School of Law and obtained a JD back in 2011.
0: Well, Alabama has a reputation in terms of football, so we don't have to get into that right now. But, uh, okay, let's uh, move on into your work experiences.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, as I said, I'm a licensed attorney. I started my career as a public defender in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So, unlike a lot of states and a lot of organizations around um The U.S. Alabama in 2011 didn't have a centralized criminal defense system. So when I even before I graduated law school, I wanted to become a public defender and and kind of work to change the criminal justice system down in, in the South and took a job down there and worked for a number of years where a public defender In Tuscaloosa at the time, it was the only one in the state. It was a great job. You know, I loved what I did. I really felt like I had an impact or was able to make an impact in a lot of people's lives. And that that really set the tone for my career moving forward as an attorney. I went from a public defender into some civil defense work where I represented organizations. But Never really got the fulfillment that I had when I felt like I was making a positive impact on an area that I needed cha- that I know needed change. And in Alabama, I thought that was the criminal justice system. So I kind of went back and forth in different organizations. Joined a criminal defense firm that's you know really prominent across the country and had you know had good success there. But again, didn't have the fulfillment that I really wanted. Ultimately led me to the U.S. Center for Safe Sport out in Denver, Colorado. So what I realized through my decade or so of legal practice was I was drawn to organizations that had a mission, that had an impact that I could relate to. And so in 2019, I moved myself, the wife, and two kids out here to Denver to join an organization known as the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, where I spent four years as the VP of Response and Resolution um, as a organization that was really trying to stop and prevent abuse in the Olympic movement in the United States and did that for a number of years until here recently, I hung out my own shingle in legal ease, joined with a local law firm here to create a consulting group to really fill some of the safety gaps that we saw that exist in sports today, right, especially in the U.S. where we saw that there were needs in the community where we could come in provide the expertise that I had gained over the last, you know, almost five years at the U.S. Center for Safe Sports to, to help communities build a safer sport environment.
0: Well, we've sure seen the abuse in uh, gymnastics as, as one of the key areas.
1: Yeah, you know, gymnastics with NASA really got a lot of public attention directed towards just abuse and, you know, misconduct in sport. But what I tell people when I'm out giving, you know, talks or education is is one of my missions now, right? One of the things that I've decided I want to do in this sports community, which is massive in the U.S. Salon, but massive on a global scale, is really shine a light on the prevalence of abuse and how much there really is. And when I say that, I tell people all the time that in the U.S. alone, <clears throat> somewhere but around—these are lower numbers, right? Out of studies and surveys done, about 25 million youth participate in sports every year, right? That's a massive number. And in the U.S., a survey was done that showed <clears throat> 40 to 50 percent of athletes are subjected to some type of abuse, right? Whether that's physical abuse. Emotional, sometimes called psychological abuse, or sexual abuse, right? And that's a massive number. I told you, I was a philosophy major from the University of Alabama. Math is not my forte. But even I can say 40 to 50% of 25 million is a massive number. And we as a society have not come to terms with the fact that sports can have such a negative impact. I tell people all the time, we have a hard time looking past the good of sports to the bad. And what I mean by that, and I come from an avid sports fan's place, is that we often stop at how much we love sports, how much of a positive impact it had on us, how much we enjoy watching it, how it builds community, right? Like I told you from Alabama, Alabama, Football is king, right? Like they put two, 300,000 people flock to the city of Tuscaloosa to watch football every Saturday during the fall. That's a massive impact. And what I tell people is we got to get to a point where we can understand that we can love sports and recognize that there can be problems with it as well, that bad things can happen, and those are not mutually exclusive, which is what we sometimes seem to have as a position we take in our society. But I tell people all the time, the U.S. is not just the only problem, right? This is a global problem. I, You know, I did some work up in Canada. I will tell you that there was a great survey out of Canada that said that, you know, 38 to 72% of surveyed athletes were subjected to what they call psychological abuse, right? Which means that there it was a harm to their self-worth or emotional well-being, right? That's a massive number of these athletes surveyed. Eleven to twenty-one percent subjected to physical abuse in sport. Nine to thirty percent subjected to sexual abuse in the context of sport, right? So when we talk about these numbers of abuse, it's just getting Massive. And I tell people, we, the first step is coming to terms with how prevalent it is in sport. You said it, like, Nasser kind of shined the light on the abuse of hundreds of women and young women, you know, youth in gymnastics, but it doesn't stop there. There's so many examples of that, right, that didn't get the attention that NASA got. So even out of the UK, right, they did a survey of upwards of 10,000 adults in the UK with several different partners across Europe that showed that 65% of these adults surveyed were, you know, exposed to at least one instance of psychological abuse as a youth. 65% of 10,000 surveyed adults, right? 44% Subjected to some level of physical abuse, you know, 35% reported non-contact sexual abuse, 20% reported full contact sexual abuse, right? When you think about those numbers, how many people play or are participating in sport, it's just hard, right? I tell people all the time, it's hard to come to terms with how much abuse is occurring within sports. And it happens in all sports all levels across the globe. And that's what I'm trying to do is to bring recognition to that abuse because in my opinion, one of the first steps to helping prevent it and respond to it is just the understanding of it being out there.
0: So Bobby, are the what are the top three sports where you see this kind of abuse taking place?
1: You know, that's a great question. And while I was at the center, you know, I would see the the biggest correlation to sport is the, the membership, right? And so there was no single sport that if it was like a per capita that I saw abuse happening in more in like, oh you know, it happens more in gymnastics than it happens in tennis, right? What I actually saw, the correlation was more with, how many participants, so how big the sport was, so your largest sports tend to be things like hockey, gymnastics, soccer, tennis, that have massive memberships. And the most commonly, especially when you talk about sexual abuse, the most common victim or person targeted by an abuser is a female, typically aged from 13 to 17. So when you saw sports with larger female demographics, especially 13 to 17 with larger membership basis that's where we saw more abuse it happened less and then you know that's kind of the common sense right it happened less on a scale when we saw less people in that sport happened more in sports where we saw a lot of females right we still have a society where the most common abuser is an adult male and the most commonly abused is a you know adolescent female that's that's where we live in the u.s that's the numbers right now that are supported by studies done by the CDD and organizations really across the globe.
0: So in your case, do you see it in football as well? Because that's obviously a sport that we both have an interest in.
1: You know, absolutely. Right. And and like I said earlier, abuse occurs in all sport in some form or fashion. One of the things we do know is that if sexual abuse is occur, it does occur in male dominated sports, but, it, males, especially young males, underreport sexual abuse. It is a, it is still a stigmatized, you know, allegation in the U.S. that a lot of people are not for you know comfortable coming forward with. Right. So we know that sexual abuse of young men is very underreported in the U.S. But what we also know is that physical and emotional abuse. Are still very prevalent right i played football when i was younger i was certainly not to the alabama standard when it comes to the university but when i think back of things that even happened on the teams that i played on as a youth today we would see those as pushing the boundaries of emotional or physical abuse right those that's kind of the gray area of sport abuse nowadays because there are generational gaps there are things we call tough coaching there's not a consensus across the sporting community as what constitutes, you know, emotional or physical abuse. Sexual abuse tends to be a little bit more black and white, right? A coach engaging in any type of sexual behavior, whether that's physical, verbal, you know, non-contact with a minor athlete, people immediately recoil and say, that is wrong. That is sexual abuse. That's a lot more black and white. But when it comes to that emotional and physical abuse, like, Running till someone throws up, right? Like, where do you see that? If you ask a dozen different people, you may get six different answers. So, in football, in a very physical game like that, like, you absolutely know that physical abuse and emotional abuse are occurring, but they're underreported. And emotional abuse, especially, is underreported. And that makes sense, right? When you take a step back and you think about sports, right, just in general. Sports are all, they, they almost run, are run by their own rules or are guided by their own rules, right? They develop their own kind of ecosystem. And when you dig in a little deeper, what is that overall mentality that you see in most sports, right? Win. You got to win, right? Sports are competitive. It's a competition. So their rules are often built under or on the foundation of win at all costs, which really sets up this potential for physical and emotional misconduct sexual abuse things of that nature and i will tell you i've worked with a lot of you know individuals been subjected to some level of abuse and they especially physical or emotional they may not even recognized it as potential misconduct because they were so ingrained and again it was part of that culture and we're just now coming to terms with some of the things that are happening that we see as potential abuse
0: So what's interesting, Bobby, it's not just the athletes themselves. It's also the officials. Because I was an official at the Olympics and in several uh, world championships in track and field. And uh, I'll tell you, I I was on the receiving end of a lot of abuse by parents and and that kind of group.
1: Absolutely. Right. You know, and it's one of those things where sports are important to a lot of people, right? Myself included. It is very personal, right? And so people get very involved. And I've seen it, right? And I've seen sporting organizations start to take steps to protect referees or coaches from potential, you know, verbal, physical, right? I've seen the physical assaults of referees or sports officials in different, you know, situations and yeah you're right like it it is not like i tell people all the time it, this is not the type of conduct that is siloed or contained in any area of sport right it doesn't just happen to athletes right it isn't just done by coaches it doesn't just happen to young women at this age it is doesn't just happen in the US this you know physical emotional sexual abuse is a global problem in sports it happens across all facets of sports you know at the highest level right olympic coat is like the pinnacle of athletics right these are the greatest athletes in the world competing against each other and we know it happens at that level i've seen it happen at the grassroots level with six and seven-year-olds playing soccer on a field at the YMCA, right? The coaches engaging in misconduct, parents, others, right? This is a, again, this isn't, like, it's just an epidemic on a global scale that we're just starting to come to terms with. I tell people, like, this has been in the works for, you know, a decade or so between sports. People starting to come to terms with the potential abuse in sport when you had Nasser and Sandusky really shine a light on like these like how bad it can get, right, in the US. That again brought it to the really to the forefront. You had the Me Too movement, things that really started to push the public sentiment, saying like, oh man, this can be a problem. And so it's really like Safe sport in general is a newer concept when you compare it to how long sports has been around, right? Hundred, like for over a hundred years in the U.S. alone, there have been organ, sporting organizations that are, that still exist today, right? So when you think about that, over a hundred years these organizations have existed, and I'm not saying they didn't do things to combat abuse even from the beginning, but it wasn't until the center was authorized by the US, you know, by the federal government back in twenty seventeen that you had a federally authorized entity to handle or address abuse in the Olympic movement, right? So I mean just think about that. Hundreds of years these sports have existed, but it wasn't until a few years ago that we started to say, okay, there's enough of a problem here that there's going to be some involvement by the federal government to address it. So the whole concept of abuse in sport, like preventing it responding to it is is really a new concept relative to how long organized sports have existed, you know, just in the US. So I think we're we're definitely moving in the right direction. But sometimes even I as a professional in space have to take a step back and realize this safe sport movement across the globe is still really in its infancy. And it's up to us, meaning individuals who are understanding of the problem to keep pushing the movement forward, right? To, to make sure that the public and the general population is aware of just how bad it is, but that we can, we can help, right? There's, there's things we can do. We can make it better. And so, yeah, so that's what I've started doing in the last, you know, the last five years of my life. And, and, you know, it's as fulfilling of a mission as I've ever had is really trying to have an impact on something that is, is personally important to me but then also that I know is personally important to just millions of people, you know, across the country.
0: Do you, does the center measure both outputs and outcomes?
1: Yeah, so while I was at the center, you know, there was a lot of, you know, data collection and measurement, right? Being one of the first organizations of its kind, you know, receiving reports from people across the country putting the center in a great position to really start to delve into how much abuse is out there right and i think the center is is still doing that and will be in a great position to help us understand as a society really what is out there they just launched and i encourage any of your listeners to go Mm -hmm. to the center's website right even though i'm not a part of the center anymore i think its mission is as important as ever and they launched a national survey of all athletes to do kind of you know to measure and survey abuse but it also for its own thing it measures how many you know cases or you know complaints it receives on a yearly basis how many you know resolutions there are and they absolutely do that and they release it publicly in its annual report so the public can see you know just generally how many and i mean thousands of reports the center who is six years old at this point has received. I used to tell people when I was there, before I was the center in 2019, when they opened their doors, their first year they got like 300 reports, right? And it's like, oh man, 300. That's, that's a lot of reports. The center is like, okay, we're gonna be busy. In my, you know, my fourth year there, we were we were tracking 8,000 reports, right? And so, you know, it just in, you know, just in five years exploded, as people not only recognized who the center was. But as a society, we became more understanding of what abuse may be and where we can report it, which I think was a, a huge step in the right direction. So, yeah, there's a, the center does a great job not only collecting data, but also then publishing that data so the public can see it. And they, they put their annual reports up every year on their website. And you can go and you can see exactly what kind of the number of reports they received, the types of resolutions that were implemented by the center. And it's a great resource for people just to understand the Olympic movement, which in the United States is massive. And there's kind of a misnomer, a misunderstanding of when people think of the Olympic movement, they think of the athletes competing in Tokyo or competing in Paris or soon to be L.A. And that is the Olympic movement at its pinnacle, at its peak. But I tell this story all the time. My seven-year-old son, who has shown no, (laughs) you you know, not nearly, at, at least at seven, the physical prowess to be an Olympic soccer player, right? He loves soccer. He is technically a part of the Olympic movement because the team he plays for here in Denver, which is the Colorado Rapids Recreational Youth League, is a part of the Olympic movement. So the Olympic movement in the U.S. covers 10 to 12 million people, which is just massive. So the center is a wonderful resource for people to kind of understand you know, some of the just the abuse that's occurring in that lane of sports in America. It's a big lane, but it's not the biggest, right? I already told twenty five million youth alone play sports in the US every year. So the center, you know, even though it's having a massive impact only covers a percentage, a small percentage of the athletes in the US.
0: Okay, talk for a minute because of your background about prevention and mitigation
1: yeah, which is important, right? I, I think prevention is so important. I think it takes a couple steps, which is a lot of what I do now is helping people understand. Right. recognize the warning signs of abuse right especially within the sports context youth not wanting to you know when you see them withdraw when you see them wanting to avoid practice when you see them losing interest in a sport that you know as a parent or as someone close to that you knew was very important to them so there are warning signs out there but prevention and education helps us stop being so reactive right what I did for so many years at the US Center for Safe Sport was response and resolution which means responding to abuse allegations things that have already occurred so what I do now is help people really understand through training and education what abuse can look like situations that you know increase the risk of abuse and what I tell people is as we grow as our understanding grows as a society of what you know abuse is how to recognize it policies and procedures are so important right creating a safe environment helps us get upstream from abuse right it helps us hopefully prevent some of the situations that lead to abuse what i tell people all the time especially sexual abuse it is not an act it is a process right sexual abuse occurs over time there's grooming there's manipulation it is not one act it rarely one act where it's just what i would call an act of opportunity right a true predator has a type of individual that he is or she is trying to abuse, get access to. And it takes time for this process, months, years, right, for these things to occur. And what I tell people is the more we build up our understanding and knowledge base of what that abuse looks like or what that grooming and manipulation looks like, the more we create policies and procedures to help prevent situations where grooming or manipulation can take place, we can get more upstream, right? And I think, so I think training and education, right? Building up what we all know to be abuse, right? It's kind of lacking. Like I said, like when I throw those numbers out, I did at the beginning of the show, people are usually shocked. Like, what do you mean 40 to 50% of of youth are subjected? I've never seen anything like that. I'm like, you may have, right? But you, you know, you haven't, built up the understanding and one of the things i I told a class recently is my hope is that when i'm done with this meaning when my time on this earth is over because i expect i'll be doing this for as long as i possibly can i hope that we as a society view education and training related to abuse abuse prevention and response in the same context that we view cpr and basic life-saving skills, right? We don't see them in that same context right now. But I tell people all the time when they say to me, look, I don't have kids in sport or I coach my own kids so the abuse can't happen. I'm like, look, I don't get CPR training because I think I'm ever going to have to provide that to somebody on the street, right? I just get it because in the awful situation that I needed, I know that I can have a profoundly positive impact on somebody's life. And what I want us to do as a society is get to the point where we view abuse recognition and prevention training, like bystander intervention training, how to respond to abuse if you see it, how to recognize abuse, right? In the same context, hopefully you never need it. But if you do, if you come to a situation where that training comes into play, I promise you, you will have a profoundly positive impact on somebody's life. And I say that because we know that most abuse disclosures are delayed, right? They're they're delayed for a long time. In fact, a study that recently came out says most sexual abuse disclosures delay for 40 years or more, that most abuse victims come out and, de- and disclose their abuse in their 50s. So we know that not only does that individual, that survivor, live with the abuse, you know, the abuse that they suffered, the trauma of that abuse. But they live with that, like that burden of not disclosing it for nearly 40 years. So if we can do more as a society to recognize and prevent any of that abuse, we've got to do it. So that's my goal, right? That's, you know, when you say, how do you prevent, how do you help respond to it? You get trained, you get education to help recognize it. How to prevent it, how to respond to it, right? As a bystander, what do you do? I tell people all the time, there was, you know, that study that I was talking about, I think it was, you know, the one out of the UK, most of the athletes who reported sexual abuse reported some element of bystander intervention or bystander effect happening. And what I mean by that is, you know, when things happen in a group, you know, there's a group around, we're less inclined to step up and stop it because we're waiting for somebody else to do it, right? So think of a car crash. You see a car crash. How many cars keep driving by that car crash even though there may be somebody in that car that needs help? A lot of people revert back to, well, there's a lot of people around. Somebody else will stop, right? I tell people all the time that, you know, training our youth and our adults about bystander intervention is a is a great first step. Like what to do when you see something happening that shouldn't happen. But yeah, so you know, long answer. The short answer is, it starts with education. It starts with training, and then it starts with organizations ensuring that they have the right policies and procedures in place to really mitigate the potential of abuse. Right to make sure. That their environment is as safe as possible. And there are a lot of policies and procedures out there, model policies and procedures, right? And I tell people, I wanna see the parents get more involved and hold their organizations accountable to make sure that those policies and procedures are in place, right? How do you help prevent that, right? As a parent, build up your understanding of what abuse potentially is, but also of what the tools are that can be implemented by the organizations your kids participate in and then hold that organization accountable, ask them, what are your policies and procedures with regards to, you know, preventing abuse, preventing sexual abuse? What are your, you know, what are your policies about electronic communications between coaches and their minor athletes? There's a lot of questions that, you know, parents can ask, you know, that can really hopefully raise the bar of safety across the board. So that's a long answer because there's a whole lot we can do that we should be doing to really mitigate abuse by helping prevent it, you know,
0: in, in the policy, procedure, and education. Bobby, we could go on for two hours easily. <coughs> uh, I guess my uh, final question is, when is the book coming?
1: <laughs> I would love to get a book out sooner than later, right? And so for me, I think for me, what I really would love to do and what I, my big focus right now, outside of just, you know, my private practice is really starting to get together a group of safety professionals. And I've started to do this in the sports world who can one, take some of the burden off of survivors. I think for far too long, we've kind of burdened the survivors with pushing the sports safety movement forward. And I think For them, their voice always has to be heard, but us as safety professionals should be, you know, really taking the burden off of them and help moving it forward by keeping this movement going. And these safety professionals kind of getting together and, like you said, kind of writing the book on what the bar should be, what the – my hope is that we can start setting some national standards that not only apply to the Olympic movement – but it can really set universal standards across the board in the US and others, right? Can-